Well, now we turn to God's word, the reading of it, the preaching of it. And you can see in your bulletin that we're turning this morning to 2 Samuel 23. We're making our way down the home stretch of this book. There are only 24 chapters in it, and today we finish chapter 23. Just to get our bearings, remember where we've been, remember where we were last week. Last week we looked at the first part of chapter 23, a passage that's billed as the last words of David. And remember, that that didn't mean that they were absolutely the last words that David ever spoke on earth. No, they were the last words of David in the sense that they represented his last enduring poetic legacy left to the people of God after him. And remember, his theme in those last words, his theme was kingship. His theme was what Israel's covenant kingship can and ought to be, and what beautiful words they were. When one rules justly over men, David wrote, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For will he not cause to prosper all my help? And my desire. So we saw last week this tone of amazement that David had because he'd known God's favor like that. David was also blunt about those who did not enjoy God's favor, those who remain opposed to God's purposes instead of loving them and advancing them and embracing them. He had some things to say about them as well. So that was last week. Verses 1 through 7 in this chapter, that brings us to this week, the rest of the chapter. And the rest of chapter 23, on the heels of what we saw last time, the rest of the chapter reminds us that though the king was, to be sure, a single figure, only one king, and if he reigned well, it was a blessing, still it's also true that the king reigned well as one who was served well by a host at his command, a company of courageous and committed servants. Just one king, but plenty of servants who served him and who defended him and who by their service contributed to making his reign the blessing that it could have been and should have been. So that brings us then to chapter 23, beginning at verse 8. And, and remember this, too, about the structure of this whole section toward the end of the book. And this was something I mentioned a few weeks back when we got into these last four chapters of Second Samuel a section that's sometimes labeled an epilogue or an appendix, chapters 21, 22, 23, and 24. Remember, we've got these recurring themes in these last four chapters. We get to know David better as a king who had to deal with some calamity, as a leader who was served by valiant men, and as a poet who gave expression to his faith. 
We get to know David better in those three ways. Those are recurring themes in these last four chapters. But remember, as I mentioned at the time, there does appear to be a kind of structure in the way those themes are explored in these last four chapters. If you're the kind of person who likes letters as labels, it's what we might call an ABC-CBA pattern through to the end. It's a mirror. On the outside of this whole section, these last four chapters, the bookends, you've got two passages that have to do with David as a king who had to deal with some kind of calamity or trial. And then next inside, you've got David as a leader who was served by valiant men. And then in the middle, back to back, you've got two of his poems, David as a poet who gave expression to his faith. So what that means, getting our bearings again, is that this morning we're making our way down the downslope of this up and down pattern, this mirror pattern the end of the book. We made our way up, calamity, servants, poetry, and now we're making our way down, poetry last week, servants again this week, and Lord willing, some calamity next week, but thankfully not just calamity, but mercy as well. So listen now to God's word, 2 Samuel 23, beginning at verse 8, lots of names. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josh, Joshab, Bashebeth, a Tekemanite. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him among the three mighty men was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, son of Ahohai. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day, and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. And next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Hararite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled from the Philistines, but he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines, and the Lord worked a great victory. And three of the thirty chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem, and David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well at Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried it and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty. And he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. 
And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabziel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. And he struck down an Egyptian, a handsome man. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff and snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. These things did Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the thirty, but he did not attain to the three. And David set him over his bodyguard. Asahel, the brother of Joab, was one of the thirty. Elhanan, the son of Dodo of Bethlehem. Shammah of Herod. Elikah of Herod. Helez, the Paltite. Ira, the son of Ikesh of Tekoa. Abiezer of Anathoth. Mabunai, the Hushathite. Zalman, the Ahohite. Meharai of Natophah. Heleb, the son of Baana of Natophah. Ittai, the son of Ribai of Gibeah of the people of Benjamin. Benaiah of Pirathon. Hidai of the brooks of Gaash. Abai Alba, the Arbathite. Asmaveth of Bahurim. Eliabah, the Shalbanite. The sons of Jashan. Jonathan. Shammah, the Herorite. Ahiam, the son of Sharar, the Herorite. Eliphalet, the son of Ahazbai, of Maacah. Eliam, the son of Ahithophel, the Gilanite. Hezro of Carmel. Peari, the Arbite. Igal, the son of Nathan of Zobah. Bani, the Gadite. Zelech, the Ammonite. Naharai of Beeroth, the armor-bearer of Joab, the son of Zeruiah. Ira, the Ithrite. Gerub, the Ithrite. Uriah, the Hittite. Thirty-seven in all. So this is the word of our God. These are the names of many of the servants of God. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you for your word, and we pray that you would teach us now. In your providence, we have before us a passage this morning that is unlike others that we have encountered as we've made our way through these books. But we say again about this passage what we've been saying all along, which is that these things were written for our instruction as the Apostle Paul says, written for our instruction. And so that becomes our prayer. Father, would you instruct us? And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. This past Monday, we celebrated a birthday. It was the 246th birthday of the USA, and a few of us got together to mark the occasion, and naturally, naturally, we marked it with pork tenderloin and tuna salad and mini cheesecakes and badminton and croquet and bug spray, and it was awesome. 
And we also marked the occasion with a reading of the Declaration of Independence. And that was awesome, too, because it meant we got to read words like magnanimity and perfidy and usurpations several times and consanguinity. So we're all better prepared now to take the SAT. So we read the Declaration, and you may recall that Declaration ends with these words. And for the support of this Declaration, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And so it ends, although not really. It's not entirely true to say that it ends that way. The way it really ends, after we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, is with a bunch of names. Fifty-six names. When it says we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor, well, there's a we that's doing the pledging. And they put their names to it, 56 names, so many wonderful, memorable names. There's a guy named Button, Button Gwinnett from Georgia. There's a guy named Jefferson, who's best known to us as the founder of the University of Virginia. There's a guy named Adams, who these days, sadly, is best known for his summer logger. So many wonderful, memorable names, 56 names. But what I said on Sunday is what I'll say again today. The names matter. The names of those who signed that document, the names remind us that history is flesh and blood. It's men and women and children like us. It's not just events and eras and ideas and causes and maps and timelines. Though when you study history, there's a lot of that, and and rightly so. But it's people. It's people who bore names and who were known by those names, who were called by those names, and who were laid to rest under stones that bore their names. So that was true in 1776. The names and what they mean, well, it was just as true around 1000 B.C. And so now we go from the Declaration of Independence to 2 Samuel 23. Lots of names in our passage today, and the names have the same effect, but even more powerfully so, for this is the Word of God. They remind us that history, including covenant history, salvation history, which is our history, is flesh and blood. It's men and women and children like us. The basic overall structure of the passage that's before us today, so verses 8 through 39, the basic structure is this. First of all, you've got these three men who really stood out in David's service. They're the ones who were named first. They stood out for their courage and for their exploits, and we're told a little bit about what their exploits were. Theirs was a special rank. They were the three. And then you've got these 30 other men who were just one level below them in David's service. They also stood out. They were the 30. Apparently, that label, the 30, could be that it was more of a title 
for the group or a nickname than it was a precise figure. And I say that because there are more than 30 names in the list. Could even be that there was some fluidity over time in terms of who the men were who were recognized as belonging to that group and filling it out. And clearly, these were categories, the three and the 30. These were categories, these were levels that did have something to do with where these men ranked in David's service at the time and how precisely they served him. In other words, it wasn't after the fact. It wasn't from the vantage point of history that these men were recognized and regarded in this way. This was real time in David's service. Perhaps it was a little like Jesus and his disciples. Jesus had a growing number of believers... Among those believers, he chose 12 to be the apostles. And among those 12, there were three who were especially close to him. Peter, James, and John. Three that he wanted close to him in some of his most dramatic and poignant moments. Perhaps this was a little like that. David had a whole army. Among that army, he had 30, give or take, who stood out. And over those 30, he had three who ranked highest of all. Some of these names we've encountered before. Many of them we haven't. And it was part of my sermon prep today to cue up an audio Bible and to listen to those names and to make some phonetic notes to myself. It's a mix of native Israelites and faithful foreigners among the 30. Among the Israelites, it's a mix of different tribes. It's especially remarkable, and I hope you notice this, that Uriah the Hittite is named in this chapter there at the very end. Remember, it was Uriah that David had killed in battle in a desperate attempt to resolve the fact that David had taken that man's wife to himself. So to read Uriah's name here, that hits us hard. Apparently, Uriah wasn't just any old soldier in David's army. He was one of his most highly regarded soldiers, and David had him killed. That could be why it took special instructions from David to Joab to find a way to have him killed. It had to be engineered because of the soldier that Uriah was. And he a faithful foreigner in David's service. So here's this hall of fame in chapter 23. And just when you're about to exit the hall and move on to the next exhibit, you stop in your tracks. Because you notice the last plaque in the hall, the last bust, and it makes you pause. Uriah the Hittite. It makes you pause because you know how he died and why. So that's what we've got here. It's a fascinating passage to read, not just these names, but these exploits, including one guy who goes up and against an Egyptian. The Egyptian's got a spear, he's got a staff. So he takes his spear. And that's the end of the handsome Egyptian. Quite a passage we've got here. Now, what do we learn from it? What, what can we glean from this passage? 
There, there are two lessons in particular that I want to highlight here. The first of them, just briefly, because this, this first of the two lessons to learn is a reminder of something that we've seen before, a point that I made from this pulpit not too long ago. And that's because back in chapter 21, remember this whole final section of the book has a kind of ABCCBA mirror pattern. Well then, just a few chapters ago in chapter 21, we had a passage like this one. A hall of fame. Servants of David who were courageous and committed, and we learned a little bit about who they were and what they did in his service. So this was back in chapter 21. And we were told about Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, and Sibekai the Hushathite, and Elhanan, the son of Jareh, Oregim, and Jonathan, the son of Shimei. So that was back in chapter 21. We had a slightly smaller hall of fame. Didn't take so long to tour. And what did we learn then? This is the reminder. Let's learn it again today. Our God is a God who provides valiant servants in the cause of his anointed. Our God is a God who raises up, who provides valiant servants for the cause of his anointed one. That was true in David's day, and it's still true today, and now the anointed of God is great David's greater son, our Lord Jesus. God raises up valiant servants in the cause of Christ now. And it's not just the outstanding heroes. It's not just the occupants of the halls of fame. It's any one of us, it's you and me. By his grace, the same grace that, that, that almighty God has shown his people throughout the ages. By that same grace, God works in you and in me a measure of courage to serve him, to stand for him, to stand for his cause, to stand for his Christ. So there are passages like this in the Bible, passages in which folks are held up for us to admire because they exhibited remarkable courage in outstanding ways and extraordinary moments. But that shouldn't discourage us. That shouldn't leave us thinking, well, I could never be like that. To the contrary, that should encourage us. That should leave us thinking, this is a picture of what I can and ought to be by that same grace of God that's always been at work. There's something reassuring. There's something even thrilling about the thought that I'm a kindred spirit with these heroes. That's ennobling and not discouraging. As I said a few weeks back, that, that's something that we experience in our own ways, in our own lives, whether it's sports or the arts or any kind of creativity that you might be involved in. We gaze upon the masters, and it's thrilling to think that we share this task or this activity in common with them. We, we have that point of connection with them. And it's the same thing here in the Bible. We tour these halls of fame. And, and as distant as we might feel in some ways from who they were and when they lived and how they served, still there's a sense of connection and camaraderie with the folks who are enshrined in those halls. So when you read about David's valiant men, his mighty men, his giant killers, just remember the God who made them courageous and gave them victory, he's your God too. 
And by his grace, he's raising you up as well. Same God, same grace. So that's a first lesson to learn here. That's a point by way of reminder. Now, here's a second lesson for us to learn. And we'll reflect upon this one a bit longer. And it does have to do with all of the names. It's worth reflecting upon the fact that we've got all of these names here in this Hall of Fame. Of, of course we do. It wouldn't be a Hall of Fame without them. The three and the 30 and then the 30 were more than 30. What's in a name? Names matter. Names matter. And that starts with God, doesn't it? God has made himself knowable by name. And by his grace, we do. We know God by name. What does it mean to say that? It means that we have a personal relationship with God. And in the context of that relationship, we can actually speak to him. We can address him as children. We can actually call him, name him, Father. Because that's what he is in the triune Godhead. And that's what he is now to us and for us. No wonder Jesus said, when you pray, say, our Father. God has made himself knowable by name. And by his grace at work in our lives, we do. We know him by name. And just saying that much is to take a stand about what God is like. Just to say that, to affirm that about God, is to some degree to set ourselves apart from the way some, if not many, think about God. In some religious systems, according to some religious instincts, well, the thinking goes, the very idea of the divine is so transcendent. The very idea of God is so ineffable and and, and mysterious and hidden. Well, therefore, the suggestion that you could name God is a non-starter. The thought that you could know him like that. The way some people think about God, it just doesn't compute for them that God could be named. They think he's too transcendent or it is too transcendent. So it just doesn't make sense that we could know him like that. And that is one of the most wonderful things about the way God has made himself known to us. He's made himself known to us by name. The one who is transcendent, absolutely, who dwells on high, has been so kind and in the best sense condescending as to kneel down to us and to teach us to know him. To speak to him, to name him, according to the way that he has revealed himself. That's what happened all the way back when God made himself known to Moses. Remember Moses at the burning bush? Moses knows in that amazing moment that this is a real issue. The issue of God's name. The issue of God being knowable and addressable by name. Moses gets it. That that's going to be an issue 
when he goes back to the people of Israel and starts making these claims about the role that he's going to play. So Exodus chapter 3, Moses at the burning bush. It says this. This is uh, beginning at verse 13. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? See, Moses gets it. He knows he's, he's going to be asked that question, and he knows he's going to need an answer for it. God answers him. God said to Moses, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. Exodus 13. And that revelation of the divine name there in Exodus 3, the way God answers that question that Moses poses, that appears to be related to the unique name Yahweh the name by which Israel learned to address her very unique God, Yahweh, or as we sometimes have it in our English tradition, Jehovah. And that wasn't the only one. You can do whole Bible studies on the names of God. Maybe you've done them. All of these different ways by which God made himself addressable by his people. They knew him by name, and so many of those names captured and reflected things that were true of God and the way his people had come to relate to him, to trust in him, to depend upon him. So God made himself known like that to his covenant people, and that's just it. He was bound to them by covenant so that they knew him and could name him as no other people could. And then, of course, in the fullness of time, that God, who'd made himself known like that, in the fullness of time, that same God made himself known in the birth of a baby boy. And that boy was given a name. And the name mattered. Matthew chapter 1. Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. For he will save his people from their sins. And so here we are. We look back on that remarkable moment when Joseph is given instructions about the name that's to be given. We look back on that, and then we pivot and we look forward Thanks to Paul in Philippians 2, we look forward to a very different day. Philippians 2, Paul says, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. The one who's called Jesus, who was named Jesus, because the angel said so, He's he's exalted in that name now. And he shall be in the end. And in the meantime, he's calling men and women and children to himself by their names. 
and this is when it gets personal, wonderfully, joyfully personal. It's positively staggering and thrilling to think that Jesus, named Jesus, knows us and loves us and calls us by name. So yes, it's true to say that Christ is calling to himself a church, a people, a people that spans time and space. That's true. A vast, worldwide, history-wide company. That's true. And, not but, and it's also true that he does that by calling to himself one sinner after the next. Personally, individually, by name, brings that person to faith and incorporates them into that church. And you get glimpses of that in the New Testament. There are passages in the New Testament that have lots of names. That's why I wanted to read for us Romans 16 earlier in our service. Quite a few years ago, I made it my goal to memorize the book of Romans. And it was hard, and it was thrilling, and it was a veritable marathon of Bible memorization. And of course, in a chapter, or in a book of 16 chapters, chapter 16 was the last mile of the marathon, or I suppose you would say the last mile and a half. And that last mile and a half was interesting to run. It was memorization work unlike anything that had gone before it. So many names in Romans 16. There's Phoebe, servant of the church at Sencrea. There's Prisca and Aquila. There's Eponidas, Mary, Andronicus and Junia, Ampliatus, Urbanus, Stachus, Apellus, Aristobulus, Herodian, Narcissus, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Persis, Rufus, Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermas, Patrobus, Hermas, Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who were with them. And then he says, greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I think when I get to heaven, I want to meet Nerus's sister and say, what's your name? Because we didn't get that in Romans 16. I've always wondered. And maybe she'll say, pleased to meet you. My name's Charlotte. So many names, just one chapter, all those names, each and every one of them known by God, known by Jesus, called by Jesus, called by him, so as to join the vast, worldwide, history-wide company that is the Christian church. And that's a foretaste of heaven. What a membership role that's going to be in the world to come when the role is called up yonder. When we used to have those Sunday evening hymn sings more regularly and we took requests, I could count on it. Every time a hand would go up and ask for that hymn when the roll was called up yonder. Our names are already written in the Lamb's Book of Life. What a membership role that's going to be in the world to come. 
It's, it's fascinating to think about. It's even delightful to think about the reality of this vast company and everyone there known by name. It's delightful to think about. I know it sounds silly at first, maybe even a bit shocking, but you know, there are going to be quite a few people in heaven named Jesus or Joshua or Yeshua, the equivalents. There are going to be a lot of people who pronounce it Jesus. I remember one time, uh, gosh, all those years ago, when I was sick, and it was visibly obvious that I was sick, Christy and I went out for dinner, and, and as we were eating, a fellow got up from a nearby table and asked if he could pray for me. It was quite moving, and he did right there at my table, and I introduced myself. My name's Paul, and he said, my name's Jesus. It was, or Jesus. It was, I thought, yeah, store that away for a sermon illustration. That'll work. For that matter, it seems likely that there are going to be several of them who grew up in Nazareth. What's your name? I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Nice to meet you. I'm Paul from Pittsburgh. Imagine that introduction. We have that to look forward to. And, and it's, it's rightly fascinating and thrilling. Because it's real. That's just it. It's flesh and blood. And in the world to come, we will be clothed in our resurrection bodies, flesh and blood. And each of us known by name. So what does that mean for us today? How does this point touch down? Well, think about what it means for our congregation here. We refer to ourselves as New Hope Presbyterian Church here in Fairfax, Virginia. Well, what exactly is New Hope Presbyterian Church? Well, here's one way of answering that question. It's Mike. It's Larry. It's Allah. It's Kate. It's Will. And it's Chris. That's what New Hope Presbyterian Church is. It's even Nathan, even though at this point Nathan has no idea. What New Hope is, is who we are. It's who we are by name. That God who has made himself known to us by his name, he's now loved us and called us by our names. So brothers and sisters, let us rejoice today that our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. And that for a while here on earth, our names are written in the membership role of this congregation. So let us rejoice. And then finally, this too. Maybe this counts as the third bonus point of reflection and application. Let's rejoice in this as well. Since the name of Uriah the Hittite is the last one in the chapter. Let's make this our last word. Unlike King David, our King Jesus will never, ever betray anyone who gives himself to his servant. Uriah the Hittite was one of the most outstanding soldiers that David ever had. And David betrayed him. 
and had him killed. And as I was saying before, that's one of the things that makes you pause just as you're about to leave the Hall of Fame because you see that name and you remember Christian King Jesus will never do you wrong like that. And David gets that now. King Jesus will honor everyone who gives himself to his service and he will honor them by name and he will honor them to the end. Christian, he will honor you. And that will be the last word. Let's pray together. Father, we do thank you that you've given us such a king, such a commander. We thank you that you've worked in our lives so that we are now willingly enlisted in his service. We do pray that the Hall of Fame we've toured today might stir and encourage us for your graces at work in us, raising up us up as servants too. And we thank you today. We stand amazed that you know us and have called us by name. And we do look forward to the day when that role is called and our names are heard. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.